Please take your Bibles, God's holy, perfect, powerful, and pure word, and turn in them to Colossians chapter 2. We will shortly be ready for verse 18. Last Sunday was a very sweet grace from God as we walked back into Colossians. I hope particularly that you will recall or store up in your heart several things. One, the many glories of Christ's work of salvation that have been lifted before our eyes and that I tried to pull out and put together and have included in today's bulletin as our gospel meditation as well. And I just want to encourage you to continue to think about could Christ be anything more Could he do anything more than he already has and is and will do for us? And as Josh just said, if that is not, these things are not what you are experiencing in a very tangible way every day in a relationship with God. We long, we long for you to find the hope that is in him and in a relationship with him by faith. And we urge you to call on the name of the Lord And look at the promise at the bottom of the bulletin page that his words, that whoever comes to me in faith and repentance, I will in no way cast out. We kind of climaxed that study with the union of Christ, the tying together of the fact that Christ lives in all those that he saves, he inhabits their spirits, and at the same time, incomprehensibly, places every believer into himself. So one verse we didn't look at last night, and there's a gazillion we could note, but this captures some key things. You are, if you're a believer, a follower of Christ, in, in Christ Jesus. Prepositions matter. And then descriptions. That means he becomes for you and me our entire wisdom, our entire righteousness, our entire sanctification, which is really the point of where we're at in Colossians and our entire redemption. And then we sat at the Lord's table and worshiped him. I want to encourage you perhaps to take this list home or to print the one from the email and just to continue to meditate, perhaps take one a day and just think of other scriptures, think of the stunning reality of each of these things and worship. So, Chapter 2, verses 6 and 7 have kind of been our hinge point that have moved us after all these captivating descriptions of Christ and what he has done to the fact that he's not only sufficient for our salvation, he is also sufficient entirely for our full sanctification all the way through to our glorification. We've moved from declaring the supremacy of Christ to now defending it against Many different kinds of things that seem spiritual and many would measure spirituality by them but don't actually mature us into Christ-likeness or stunt and slow that growth tremendously. So in Colossians 2.8 through 3.4, God has Paul address from, we might say, four different angles or a number of different concerns that are dangerous, either deceptions, you'll see that word in verse 8, or detractions from Christ. Chapter 2, verse 4 told us 
They're going to sound like plausible arguments to the human mind. They might even use verses. You might even be able to think about, oh, here's how these thoughts might tie in. But they can delude and mislead believers. And then if we get there next Sunday, chapter 2, verse 23, also describes these dangerous deceptions as appearing wise to human eyes when God tells us in reality from his perspective they have zero value for making us holy, for crucifying the indulgence of our flesh. So that's where we're at. You'll notice that verse 8, verse 16, and verse 18 all start with almost identical wording of Watching out, don't let yourself be sucked into these uh, detractions from Christ. First warning, verse 8, don't turn to human-based and humanistic thinking of this world, philosophy, that puts man at the center for the answers to life. But it's actually empty, useless deceit, verse 8 goes on to say, because it's not according to Christ or it doesn't have Christ at the center. We might use some Christian terms around it, but Christ is not truly the focal point. We are, or something here on earth is. And Paul countered that then. Every single one of these he counters. Verses 9 to 15, he then countered that to say, look at the glory of Christ instead. In other words, don't get absorbed in man's thinking, trying to work your way through all of this. Keep going deeper into these gospel realities of what Christ has done. And last Sunday, we heard the second warning, verse 16, don't cave into judgmental, intimidating legalists with their legalism who focus much, probably more than on Christ, on laws and laws that go beyond the law of Christ which leads us to dwelling on shadows of Christ rather than on the living, dynamic, life-giving person of Christ. A couple of thoughts I didn't have space for last week that I'll cram in now. First, the Puritan Samuel Bolton put it this way. The law is subservient to the gospel. Its purpose is to convince and humble us And the gospel is to enable us to fulfill the obedience of the law. The law sends us to the gospel for our justification. The gospel sends us to the law to frame our way of life, which, if you remember, chapter 2, verse 6 in Colossians is about how to walk through this world. The law shows us what we are like, that we cannot keep the law and become acceptable to God. It's a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. It sends us to Christ. The gospel then returns us when we are believing it and clinging to it. It returns us to the law to frame the outlining of our sanctification. Douglas Moo, rules must never take the place of Christ as the source of spiritual nourishment and growth. And any rules that we propose to follow, and there are some, must be clearly rooted in and lead back to Christ. So warnings for those of us who tend to be rule keepers. We love rules. We love boxes. And those of us who tend to be people pleasers, 
who listen to whatever the rule keepers tell us to do. Today, warning number three, starting in verse 18. Well, it's encapsulated in verse 18. Short version, hold fast to Christ. And I'm going to include, and his body, because that's such a central part of verse 19. And not to what I'm just calling special experiences. Or the longer one is, beware the tendency to focus on spiritual experiences over abiding with his body in the fullness of Christ that is in you and in the whole body. So, even if these particular things are not a struggle for you, I hope you're not worshiping angels. But we all know people who are. People who are professing to be Christ followers. So even if you don't just say, ah, these are not struggles for me, think of it in terms of equipping your own, reminding yourself, you may get there someday, or just being equipped to help others that Colossians 2 is saying are really being hindered, dragged down, turned away from Christ into these side paths instead. So let's ask God now as we study his teaching to help us understand Christ in his ways more. Father, this morning we ask again of you to do for us by the spirit of Christ in us what Jesus did for the followers that day he rose from the dead. Interpret to us in the scriptures the things concerning yourself. So our hearts burn within us. Open our minds that are so weak and ignorant and foolish to understand you and your ways better. Open our spiritual eyes that are so blinded to see Christ ever more vividly and clearly. And open our hearts still so sinful and broken despite your redeeming grace and intensify our affection for Christ. We ask in your name. Amen. So, verse 18. It's a challenging one to interpret. It either, and, and all, three, all of these things addressed in verse 18, could be under one category and might be under just separate little things. Let me talk briefly about that. So you can see that two translations that are very literal translations are endeavoring to go as closely in every way to the Greek as they can, as they turn it into English, come up with some very different wordings in the first third or so or half of this verse 18. And you can see those distinctions there. Um, now, many, many commentators, most of them, uh, lump all of this together under just a title of mysticism, which we might define as how one gets into a special state with God that is often perceived as essential for being a Christ follower. MacArthur kind of succinctly put it this way. There is a tendency in human nature to move from objectivity to subjectivity. To, sh to shift the focus from Christ to experience. This tendency looks for truth internally. Do you see that happening in our world? Even in Christendom? Weighing feelings, intuition, and other internal sensations more heavily than objective, observable, external data. My personal leaning, and I 
There's no reason for you to feel inclined this way. But I really see each of these as possibly distinct and different from rigid asceticism to emotional worship of angels and visions, but all of them falling under these are things people can be pushy with and try to convince other Christ followers to be a part of. So the verse 18 starts with, let no one disqualify you. Um, let this no one can be a particular teacher or preacher, a podcaster, a blogger, an author, book writer, a friend, a counselor we see who emphasizes these kinds of things. So if the translation as the ESV has it is disqualify you, it seems to imply that people will make you feel disqualified from real or true Christianity until you personally experience these kinds of things they say are vital. And it's kind of interesting, if you look back at chapter 1, verse 12, there's some language here about, back in 112, Christ, God qualifying us through Christ, and here humans are disqualifying us through what they're teaching or telling us. If defrauding, as the New American Standard has it translated, is the more accurate, then you have this idea of they are uh, denying you. They are not being fair, just, right, accurate. There's fraud involved. They're scamming you, we might say, into something that isn't really going to take you to fully enjoying Christ. And the irony is, all of these people who just go around, disqualify, and insist on, and go on and on with words about their experiences, all think they are more connected to God than the average Christian. When in fact, often, they're much less connected. So, first of the concerns is that they insist on asceticism. That's a big fancy word for just self-abasement or self-denial. <clears throat> but if you look at how, if you remember how the New American translated this, it has the idea of it conveys this false humility. So uh, it's a lifestyle characterized largely by abstinence rather than the enjoyment of, enjoying of sensual pleasures. We talked about that some back in verse 16, that some of those rules can do that as well. And I think added here, so others know about it. Some people who profess Christ find their richest spiritual experiences in rigid acts that look very self-deprecating. But they're not in Christ and his work. And then they worsen matters by insisting others should be like them. Hence the emphasis at the end of verse 18, that they may look humble, sound humble, use humble-sounding words, but inside, God tells us what he can see inside of them is that they're deceptively full of pride. They're arrogant people. Their boast is not so much in what Christ has done, but in what they are doing. So think monkish. Emphasizing denial and discipline as more virtuous than indulgence where God permits and enjoyment. Think 
Pharisees of Jesus' day. Think Matthew 6, which opens, this is the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, beware of practicing, displaying, manifesting your righteousness, your following of God's laws before other people in order to be seen by them. That's the key motivation in here. For then you'll have no reward. And then Jesus gave an example. These are almost identical examples. Giving to the needy, praying, and fasting. You do these display things that make you look humble in all of three of these things, and God would be far more honored, and you would have far more spiritual fruit if you'd go in your closet or go in secret where nobody else knows and do these things. It's not the things that are bad, as Sam Storms reminds us. It's not denouncing the practice, per se, but rather the perversion, particularly by motivation. Does everybody see me carrying my Bible to church? Nobody else is carrying Bibles. That kind of spirit or attitude. So he uses fasting as an example. Any bodily discipline is unduly elevated to an essential mark of true spirituality or is employed as a means of parading our piety before others must be denounced. Secondly, disqualifiers may insist on the worship of angels. So some people find their richest spiritual experiences delving into the mysterious spiritual realm more than in Christ, which also has mystery. Let's not deny that. But getting into the rest of the spirit realm and then insisting that others should and then perhaps humbly bragging about that. This seems to address an unhealthy, excessive preoccupation with angels and the role they have in our lives in which we may subtly come to depend more on angelic help than we do on Christ's help. Trudy Bush puts it this way. Here's why they can be alluring. While there's only one God, there are many angels, so many that we can each have a private angel devoted to our welfare. Some people feel a closer connection to angels than they do to Jesus. So, before we jump too far, let's recognize that even the Apostle John, at the end of the revelation that he was given in what we now have as the book of Revelation, he fell down at the feet of the angel that had brought this to him to, notice, worship him. And the angel very quickly, knowing more than Apostle John, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers. Worship God. And then we saw in Hebrews 1, Jameson read this morning, uh, just to highlight again, over and over, like where Hebrews starts is, Christ is vastly superior to the angels. It's not even close. So don't get absorbed in them. They're simply ministering spirits that are sent out. Now, you probably all know people that do really, really over-focus on angels more than they focus on Christ. Or we really could broaden this to say worship of any created thing that takes us away from worshiping Christ. So even in the Catholic realm, their venerating of Mary as a created being to somehow be a co-mediator with Christ that we would pray to 
or praying to angels or praying to dead souls or working in that whole realm that takes us beyond our focus on Christ and life now and life with him forever. Third detail uh, or third thing about them is that they go on in detail about visions or the New American Standard says they take their stand on visions. So visions, as we just saw with John in Revelation, visions may be delivered or brought by angels and hence they begin to worship those angels who bring them vision and insist that others around them should either really, really listen to what their visions reveal that often go beyond what the Word of God says, or, if not that, at least seek the same experience themselves. So I think we're talking about exalting visions, dreams, trances, prophecies, out-of-body experiences, after-death experiences that people have found make a lot of money when they write books about it as the supreme spiritual experience with revelations that we haven't been often been given in God's word. It's purporting that this is the way God more deeply communes with certain special followers of his that he gives these special experiences to. And that the common graces of his word, his spirit, prayer, worship of him, and body life are meant to provide. We could say a book like Jesus Calling falls very quickly and easily into this danger of someone claiming to have special revelation from God, special ways that God has revealed himself to that individual, which they then are meant to write a book about so that others can know these messages. People with strong emotions contend toward this, People with vivid imaginations contend toward this. And storytellers contend toward this, at least in taking it beyond our basic human experience. Oh, the stories, the myths, the fables that people can tell about their private experiences because nobody else can discount that. But we just don't know how much is real of God, truly honoring to him, how much is imagined, how much is generated by that individual to get attention, and what kind of role Satan and the evil ones may play in all of this. So it's interesting, when Paul was given in 2 Corinthians 12, this phenomenal vision, insight into heaven, here's what he wrote about it. Though there's nothing to be gained by it, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ, he's talking about himself, but he puts it in third person, who 14 years ago was, so he hasn't said a word about it to anybody that we know of for 14 years, who was caught up to the third heaven, whether in the body, out of the body, I don't know, God knows, and I know that the man was caught up in a paradise thing, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows, and he heard things that cannot be told. Do you see the difference? Which man may not utter. And Paul basically says, I could boast on behalf of this experience, but I'm refraining from it so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. And then is, right after this is the thorn in the flesh. God made sure I was humbled. He gave me a thorn in the flesh he would not remove from me. 
And I had to find out that my strength, or, or his strength, is made perfect. Not in my revelation. It's made perfect in my weakness. So all of this starting then to wrap up with the truth about all of these that we're told here. Revelation from God is, no matter how humble or how spiritual these individuals may sound, they're puffed up without reason. No American standard. They are inflated without cause. There isn't any real biblical basis for their believing these things make them more spiritual. They just feel that they do. So they have a sensuous or New American fleshly mind. God is saying the flesh is controlling their thinking more than the Holy Spirit and the Word of God does. Their Christianity has become a religion of the senses and a worshiping and exalting of an experience more than of the person of Christ. And then a final negative description going into verse 19 is that they don't hold fast to the head. And that's the biggest problem. That's the source problem. That's the heart problem. They are not singularly and, and loyally dependent on Christ as the source of their growth or their spiritual state. Here we have the idea that holding fast, we're, we're so absorbed in clinging to the head by faith that we don't have either the ability to grab hold of all of these other experiences or they don't tempt us or allure us away. Keeping our eyes of faith engaged on Christ and not chasing and uh, grabbing for and feeding on placebos rather than the things that truly mature. So, You'll notice here the head is the same term Paul used back in chapter 1, verse 18. And I think the same idea is in the vine and branches in John 15 when Jesus was teaching about himself. So I would hold that the abiding in me and I in you, and there's the twofold union that we have with Christ that we talked about last Sunday, as the branch, or in the Colossians illustration, as the joints and ligaments cannot bear fruit, genuine God-honoring fruit, by itself, just by hard work or by powerful experiences, unless it abides in or holds fast to the vine, Christ, the head. Neither can you unless you abide in me. And verse 5 goes on to just say, lots of spiritual fruit comes out of abiding in Christ, holding fast to the head, Nothing of spiritual worth when it comes when we're apart or not holding fast to the vine. Now, once Paul mentions the head, he's done with all the dangers and issues. And now he's going to describe how critical and how this holding fast to the head is manifested. And what he brings into the discussion is the church. From whom the whole body, so God's design, we're now being told, is that we'd all be connected to the vine, to the head. We'd all be nourished by it. We'd all be knit, woven, connected, joined, cemented together, and not into all these subgroups. Everybody's worshiping angels, come here for this time. Everybody that's over here with asceticism, come over here for this. 
We're not distinct and separate, but merged together and drawing life through that. The same nutrients of Christ are coming to all, and we're feeding on that and not on five-hour energy highs. None of this common attitude of, I don't need the church to follow Jesus. My personal journey is all that matters. Actually, Christ puts the body life even seemingly above the individual life. And I just want to inject here testimonially. That's why I'm so devoted to the church now. Because of a verse like chapter 2, verse 19 of Colossians. I can't imagine where I'd be in my spiritual journey were it not for the church. I just know I'd be way further behind, not further along. Even without Christ's nourishment, or I'm sorry, even with Christ's nourishment, I'm not where I should be by any stretch of the imagination. But without this, I didn't want to think where I'd be. But I wouldn't be nearly where I am. It's not programs of the church. It's not events. And I'm going to say even a Sunday morning sitting like this. If you come because you think it's the event that's growing you, that's the point of this verse. You have to come to connect with Christ. 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 So, okay, we need to move on. <sighs> Nourished, New American Standard says supplied, NIV supported, sustained. We might just say, given everything that we need, we can be fully nourished by Christ and by his working through his body to where spiritual growth is happening at a maximum without the concerns of verse 18. All of us being knit more fully together in our joints and ligaments. So you might notice, or I hope, ring a bell, knit together. We've seen that in Colossians. Go back to chapter 2, verse 2. Might turn, have to turn one page and just notice there that the way we reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowing of God's mystery, Christ, is by being knit together in love. I said this then, I'll reemphasize it now. Much of our individual maturing in Christ comes through community and, uh, sorry, maturing. Other believers' nourishment from Christ flows to me and nourishes me. Whenever I'm around you, whether it's Sunday morning, small group, one-on-one. -on -one. And vice versa by God's design, my nourishment from Christ, how Christ is growing me, flows to and nourishes others as God weaves our lives ever more closely and tightly, tightly knit together around Jesus. And we see that just so demonstrated in Jesus' time here with his 12 disciples. So when an individual goes rogue from what's just been described, and claims things that only they are privy to from God. Be extremely careful. Be suspicious. Vet that 
through God's word and not through emotions or feelings or reasoning. All of this concludes with here's growing with a growth that is from God and not from man or from humans. So I've used this word picture before with you. Uh, half of those people who have heard it won't remember it. And then there's a whole bunch of you that have never heard it. But I th for me, it's a good word picture. Difference between plastic fruit and real fruit. When you're just looking at them from a distance, can't tell the way our human eyes are. So we can imagine we're growing spiritual fruit, but Christ isn't producing it. We're generating it apart from him and apart from dependence on him, and it's not because his spirit is working through us, but because our flesh is saying that's the way. And then there's the real fruit that are actually being produced by Christ as we depend on him, commune with him, and he works through that. Okay, now we're going to go a little obscure, uh, but I hope by the end of this longer section of Scripture, you'll see the connection and it will be helpful. So when the church at Corinth, so this is still about growth that's from God. When the church at Corinth was dividing, splitting over, I really like Apollo's teaching. He's better speaker than Paul. I really like Paul's teaching. He's better than this and uh, than Apollo's. And this was happening. So going away from the knit together around Christ, here's what Paul wrote. But you can see that we can apply this to experiences. We can apply it to all kinds of things. When someone says, I follow Paul, or I worship angels, or I uh, still observe these feasts and these special times, or I really subscribe to the Enneagram, or whatever it is. When someone says, I do this, and another says, I do that, are you not, notice these words, being merely human rather than Christ followers? What then is Apollos? What's Paul? Servants, same thing we were told about angels, through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered. But here's the key. God gave the growth. Neither the one who plants or the one who has visions or the one who doesn't observe the Sabbath is anything. But only, those are extreme words, God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one. Each will receive his wages according to labor, for we're God's fellow workers. And now Paul is going to transition. Everything so far has been field and water and planting, God's field. Now he's going to switch over to God's building. Same principle, same idea, just gives us another way to think of the same things. According to the grace of God given me like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. So we just think of our salvation as a foundation of Christ. Be very careful how that is built up. And then he gives us this phenomenal revelation about judgment day for us as believers. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. No one, no human, not even close. If anyone builds on the foundation with, and now he gives six things, six building things, three of them really good, gold, silver, precious stones, and three of them really bad things to build with. I know most of our houses are built out of wood, but think more like 
crooked wood that doesn't stand up when the wind blows. That's a better picture of this wood. Here's what we're told. Each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. What kind of building of our lives on following on the foundation of salvation of Christ? What kind of work has been done in Christ, and what kind of work has been done by our flesh? If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he'll receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he'll suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Now, there's a lot of things we could talk about on that. We're not here to study that yet. But point is, there's a lot that we're doing in our lives that'll burn up on Judgment Day as that was plastic fruit. You generated that all by yourself on your strength, your abilities, your mind, whatever it is. It was human-centered rather than Christ-centered. And the call here is build your life, build your walk, water it with Christ and not lesser things. Closing thoughts, I'll turn to a number of other people to help me articulate better than I can. Title again, Beware the Tendency to Focus on Spiritual Experiences Over, and I've added, Faithful, Consistent, Simple, Abiding with His Body in Christ and in the fullness of Christ that's in you. It's a long title. I was trying to capture everything. Here's how David Garland explains that. There is nothing we can do or need to do to achieve this for ourselves. No self-imposed discipline, solemn rites, or otherworldly visions will make us fuller members of the community of the saints, will deliver us any more fully from our sins, or will more fully secure a better hope for us. Consequently, we do not need to add religious exercises or observances as if such things were spiritual vitamin supplements that can correct some salvation, or I'd add sanctification, deficiency that Christ hasn't provided enough of. To do so, Garland says, betrays our union with Christ. Oswald Chambers, in a devotional, it just popped up in my feed this week. All I do should be based on perfect oneness with him, not on self-willed determination to be godly, as much as we long to be godly. So again, is Jesus enough for you? Is he enough? Completely by himself. I'm going to use a little lighter meme just to make a point. Then we'll finish with a more serious one. I think Beth sent this to me a couple weeks ago. People ask, do I really need Jesus to go to heaven? And the response is, bro, you need Jesus just to go to Walmart. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? It's true. Everything, the breath you just breathed, the heartbeat you just had, is because of Jesus. It's all sustained. It's all given. It's all provided. There is nothing you lack that Jesus hasn't given you. Is Jesus enough? Do you have to have a human counselor? Do you have to have all those books that you read? Do you have to have this podcast that you so resonate with? 
If they're not pointing you entirely to Jesus, I will say no, including this sermon. It has to point us to Christ. He is everything. Garrett Dawson, I've shared this one before. It's a good one to finish with. It's just Jesus. And Christ is, if in Christ is all we get from God, nothing more, nothing. Sorry, lost my place. Other. He is the answer to our every need. Does that disappoint you? Were you hoping for something newer, easier, cooler? Sorry, it's just Jesus. He who, is, who God is and all God gives us comes in and through him. Maybe that seems like dull news you've heard a million times before. But consider the great Reformation motto, Christ alone. And I want to assert, not just for our salvation, but equally, just as much, every bit as much, 100% for our sanctification. Quote I've put forth to you several Sundays, just want to keep pounding it in. God has nothing else to give us than what he gives us in Jesus. But getting Jesus is getting everything. More next week as we finish out chapter 2.